chapter 42. We're going to be continuing the, the account of Joseph. And today, the dramatic account of how Joseph meets his brothers unexpectedly. Well, it's, it's good to be back together again with you today. Um, I was able, unable to, to be with you last week, as Sam mentioned, because I was recovering for some minor surgery. I was surprised to find that I, I needed an emergency appendectomy a week ago Friday night. It's a little bit of a surprise. It's even bigger of a surprise for Aaron Campbell when I called him Friday night. You probably thought I was joking. I was like, Aaron, um, you're preaching Sunday. <laughs> I don't know if it was the Delauded or what it was, but my voice was not working for a few days either. So, uh, I'm grateful for the experience, though, um, as crazy as it sounds. Because in some small way, to, to some small degree... It was really helpful for me in, in beginning to um, uh, better understand the, the frequent suffering and hardship that limitations that many people here in our congregation really uh, face on a regular, sometimes daily basis. And it just makes me all the more grateful for each and every one of you. I've got you in my minds right now thinking about the numerous ones of you who are... Um, Encountering suffering on a, on a regular basis and yet honoring God through it. And it's, it's made me more grateful for the good health that I enjoy. And made me realize even more how frail and weak I am. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll hear more about that today at the picnic. <laughs> but um, more aware of how we depend upon God for every breath. I was just overwhelmed by the affection from you, from the church. And I'm more grateful for you as a local body of Christ. I, I, I love this local church. Um, it is a joy to be together as, as part of this body. And so um, I, I was just, just thinking this morning, I'd just like to take a moment out before we begin the message and, and just take a moment to pray for those who are regularly suffering um, on, a, on a constant basis, week in and week out. There are so many people here who you wouldn't know about who are suffering because they don't tell you about it. So let's just take a moment, if we can, and pray for those in our midst who are suffering on a regular basis. Father, we, Lord, we pray for those who are undergoing prolonged illnesses and protracted disease. Lord, we're going to lift up those who are struggling with everything from diabetes to lupus and cancer. Lord, all the various people with autoimmune malfunctions and organs that aren't functioning well and God those who are suffering from chronic debilitating pain Lord we bring to you those who have muscular and skeletal disorders those who are, who are racked with pain on a regular basis and Father I pray that you would bring them comfort and, and peace and that our brothers and sisters here they would find a place of refuge in you great ruler of the universe we ask that all those suffering would find hope and joy in you Father I pray for faith to be preserved it's so hard at times when you're undergoing prolonged suffering to have faith Lord I pray for faith to be upheld and preserved just like you gave and preserved the faith of Joseph God you are the God of all grace we ask you to be merciful to relieve suffering, to bring about the reign of your kingdom in, in, in physical earthly bodies this morning. Lord, bring healing, we pray, from infirmity, 
God, as a, as a, heal, as a, as a testimony to your healing power. Father, we, we also ask that those of us who are not suffering physically, that we would be ministers of your grace to all of those who are suffering. God, teach us all to be patient with one another, merciful, long-suffering, continually faithful. God, just like you are, may we care for people whose pain we can't relate to. And Father, in the, in the loving, compassionate name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for indulging me. I just felt led that, that, that many are here would, uh, could use some encouragement who are just experiencing suffering and, and experiencing no relief from that. And, um, and, and I pray that the Lord would put it on your heart to, to be ministers of God's grace to those people who you're aware of who are suffering this week. If you could think about them, pray about them, give them a call, um, care for them as well. Well, when I, was, uh, when I was recovering from my minor temporary bout, um, Aaron was so kind to preach last week, and I heard he did a great job, and um, he, not that he had a lot of choice to preach last week, but um, he did a great job, and I enjoyed his message myself on audio, and not only was he kind to preach for me, he, he stopped by the house, and he gave me <clears throat> what my wife referred to as my man girdle. Uh, I, I don't, don't think that's complimentary. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure whose it was, and Aaron, I'm not going to ask, um, but I, I <laughs> he also dropped off his, his copy of Band of Brothers. It's a mini-series. I don't know if anybody's seen Band of Brothers. It's a mini-series, I think, that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg did. It's, it's a 10-part series, and it loosely follows the, um, a portion of the Airborne Division, an easy company, and an infantry parachute division, and, and it was actually not too far from here. They began their training in Tocoa, Georgia, about an hour and a half. And there's a few people actually who've lived in Tocoa, Georgia, and um, you can go see the, the old places where they used to train from there. And it follows them from the training, not only um, from, from close by, then it goes to the American airborne landings in Normandy, Operation Market Garden, and the Siege of Bastogne. It's great stuff for guys and girls. I think you'll like it too. It's lots of fun, lots of killing. Um, <laughs> And it goes on through the end of the war, including to the culmination when it, in the taking of the eagle's nest, which was one of the residences designed for, for Hitler. And, and through the various testings, the cool thing about the story, and it's originally a, a story or an account by Stephen Ambrose, as they experience the battle, as they're under fire, um, e- Easy Companies transforms from this, this ragtag group, this ragtag group, and they're made into a close-knit unit, and and they become a, the famous band of brothers. Um, it's, a, it's an inspiring story. And, but today, in, in this passage in Genesis, we're going to read about the original band of brothers. This was the first group of a ragtag group of men. They had some sordid pasts. They had their own selfish motivations. Each one of them was not looking out for the interests of the others, but each one of them was looking out for their own interests. But through famine, through testing through the threat of death and imprisonment, through, through hardship, they're transformed into a group of men through whom God will work and bring about his plans to, to be a blessing to all nations through these really rotten scoundrels. Before they become effective, though, they had to be united together. Before they could be used by God, they had to experience their own war with their guilt and fear and sorrow. 
so that God could prepare him to receive his grace. And that's it's a little bit like us as well, that uh, bef- before God can prepare us to receive his grace, we have to, we have to confront our own guilt, fears, and sorrows so that we can receive his great grace. Well, let's, let's read in Genesis 42 together. This is God's holy word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Can you imagine that? Mm. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are, we are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it's as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul When he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. 
And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man of the Lord spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to him, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would use your word to bring each of us a godly conviction, a godly fear, and a godly sorrow. We pray for these things that you might lead us to repentance that, Lord, we might experience your great grace. Father, I pray for each and everyone here who's struggling with guilt and fear and sorrow that you would Give hope. Father, I pray for those of us who are blind to our sin, that you would reveal our sins, Lord, not so that we can wallow in them or be stuck in them or keep looking to them, but so that we can look up and behold you, so that, Jesus, we can see you, the the remedy for all of our sins, and be made clean and be set free. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this chapter, it really opens on a desperate scene, doesn't it? The promised family, it's about to starve. The brothers, they're too helpless to rescue themselves. They're just looking around each other. And yet, it's really a a very human scene too, isn't it? It's got little details that show that it's very real interaction in the midst of a very real family with with shortcomings and and frustrations. And Jacob's an old man, and I can can almost imagine his voice, and in in my head, I, I I can hear his voice sound something like Pa Grape from the Veggie Tales, but I'm not sure why that is. If, if you don't know who that is, you can go and Google it when you get home. Um, I like the, the way the NIV phrases it. It just, it, it puts it like, you know, Jacob says, why do you stand around looking at each other? What are you doing? You know, he's got that, that real Hebrew kind of 
Jewish thing. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. What are you doing? Go there. We might live and not die. And he, he goes on from there. And it's just those very real touches that make a family very, very realistic. And it makes the setting realistic too. And he's an old man. And I don't know where that came from, but thanks for indulging me. <laughs> the brothers, they're just standing around. They're just standing around. Jacob's frustrated. And he looks at him like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then at the end of the chapter, if you look down for a minute in, in verse 38, it starts with Jacob saying, go to Egypt so we might live and not die. And then in chapter 38, I mean, I'm verse 38, I'm sorry. It says, his brother is dead. And he says, you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. There's no mention of hope from Jacob. This is supposed to be Israel. This is, this is the man of faith. And yet this is not a chapter of his faith at all. He doesn't turn to God. He doesn't exhibit faith in God. Instead, he's more aware of himself and his feelings and his needs. The chosen family, is, it's really in a desperate state, not just physically, but a desperate state spiritually as well. They need something to show them their need for God. They need something to reveal their problems. They don't see their problems. They don't see the cause of their problems. They don't see what's going on. And because of that, they, they don't look to God. You know, in our own lives, when we're more aware, that's one of the things about awareness of guilt, is that it points us to feeling a need outside of ourselves to resolve our guilt. It, it's something about pain and trials and suffering, as we've been learning over the fa- past few weeks, and as, as Aaron taught us so ably last week, there's something about those things that, that point us to look to God. And this family is in desperate need. Who, who will deliver them? You know, the Israelites, when they were hundreds of years later hearing these words read to them, they must have wondered, who will deliver them? Where's the faith? Where's the hope? What's God up to? And there's a message running throughout this whole chapter. Even when God's people don't see him and don't know what to do. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, I don't, I don't see God. I don't know what to do. God's at work to bring about their salvation. They don't know it yet. We don't see it yet in this chapter, but subtly you can see throughout. Nope, God's actually using all these things. He's working in the midst of this uncertainty. He's he's working in the midst of, they're being clueless of them not seeing their own need for God in the midst of their lack of faith. God's working to prepare them. God's working to prepare them so that he can bring about their salvation. When his people don't know, God knows. And that's good news for us this morning as well. When, when we don't know, just like this vignette, this chapter, God knows. You see, God uses a famine. I'm sure they didn't get that. This famine, oh, this is great. This is a wonderful famine. This is going to be used for our salvation. I'm guessing that that wasn't their thought. Obviously, it wasn't Jacob's thought. I'm tempted to go back to a pod grape voice right now. I just got to keep it on. Um, that, that wasn't their thoughts. They weren't thinking this famine is a really good thing. They weren't thinking this testing, this threat of, of death that we see, this imprisonment. As they spent three days in jail, they weren't thinking this is going to lead to our salvation. It's so hard for us to see how God's at work as well. When we're in the midst of things. And yet, these men 
are transformed into a group of men who God will pour out his grace on. And he's going to use to bring the blessings of Abraham to all nations. But before they could become effective, they have to be united together and made into that band of brothers to be used by God. They had to, they had to experience their own war with guilt and fear and sorrow so God could prepare them to receive his grace. You may be in the midst of what you feel like is a war with, with guilt or fear or sorrow. God intends to use that battle within to prepare you to receive his grace. We can see in this chapter God uses famine as the means to get them to move. He uses some other means to make them change also. He uses Joseph to show them their guilt to instill fear in them and to produce sorrow in them. He uses Joseph to make them aware of their guilt to instill some real fear and then also produce sorrow but all those things so they could be ready to receive God's grace. You see, that's, that's really one of the main things of the story. One of the main things in this account is that God uses fear and guilt and sorrow to, to prepare his people to receive his grace. How can God use guilt? How can God use fear? How can God use sorrow? But often God uses those things to show us our need for him. God uses an awareness of guilt, not so that we can be stuck in it, but so that we can get outside of ourselves and look to a solution that's not us. There's no remedy in, in ourselves. You know, there's this, this human desire to, to make right for our sins, to make right for the things we've done wrong, and, and there's no hope in that. We can't ever make right for everything we've done wrong. Doubtless, there's, there's many things in your mind right now that you're even now becoming aware of that you don't want anybody else to know about, that you feel like you have to make right. And yet the only remedy for that is to take your guilt to the one who can give you his grace. Those things you fear the most, you can't solve them. Those things you're sad, most sad about, you're not going to fix on your own. And these brothers had to realize that, and we have to realize that so that we can be prepared to receive God's grace. We're going to walk through the passage, and really, most of the first 25 verses is remarkable. Most of the first 25 verses from like 6 to 25, they're driving towards one goal. They're, they're driving to show us how the sons of Israel are being prepared. They're being prepared to receive God's grace through confronting their own guilt first. And so the, the verses leading up to the brother's declaration, look down at verse 21 for a second. They say to each other, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. That's, that's one of the key phrases in this chapter. It's, it's one of the key things is that it's taken the whole the verses up to there for them to finally realize their guilt. Not just their guilt because of their brother, but their guilt before God. They know now that they're guilty. And that is the starting place for them and for each and every one of us to be prepared for a place that we can come to repentance and receive God's grace and his forgiveness and his freedom. But they had to experience their guilt first. You see, they were prepared through guilt. And that's the first point that we're going to unpack today. And that's really where we spend most of the time is that they were prepared through guilt. You see, this, this old man Jacob, he was exasperated with his sons. And he's not looking to God, but he does give them the motivation they need. And so these ten brothers, they go down to Egypt 
And Jacob probably didn't know that his sons had thrown Joseph into a pit. They probably did not know. He probably did not know what they had done. But he must have suspected something. He clearly did not trust them. Their character shone through after all the years. It had been 20 years since Joseph. And yet, he still doesn't trust his boys, who are now men. He doesn't trust them to take care of Benjamin, who's also a man. The sons must have felt that distrust. It had to begin to awaken a sense of guilt in them. So it is that Joseph's brothers, the sons of Israel, they go down, they meet an unknown fate in Egypt. And they had to come to Egypt because God, he had orchestrated world events. You see, God, God is overall and through all, and God uses all kinds of means to bring about his purposes. And he, he orchestrates world's, world events so that a famine comes about, so that they have to move to confront their brother. Joseph probably wasn't personally selling to all the peoples individually of the lands who would come. There would be no way he could do that, but he was probably overseeing the sale to all the people, and he probably was the one to decide on which foreigners who, who were able to come and trade, because foreigners were a particular danger to a nation who was rich with resources when the nations around them were starving. They were a target. And so Joseph, in the providence of God was the very one after 20 years. Joseph was the very one. Imagine him sitting, minding his own business. He's not expecting that. His brothers weren't looking for him. They made no attempt to find him in Egypt over the past 20 years. It's been 20 years. They never would have expected him to be over all the land. That's for sure. But God sovereignly orchestrated events to get him there. And and just like God orchestrates the events of our lives to get us to the place where we're going to be confronted with our own sins against him. In order to experience his grace, we need to confront. We need to confront our sins. Not, not out of some morbid introspection so we're stuck navel-gazing so we can experience his great grace. Where sin abounds, in order for us to experience the second part of that verse, God sometimes has to painfully remind us of sins so we can take them to him and be forgiven so that grace can abound all the more. Joseph was 17 when his brothers last saw him. He's a man of 37 now. He probably had a a full beard at 17. Now he's shaved. He probably has a shaved head. He's in white linens and the colors of Egyptian royalty. He'd lost his boyish stature and he was a man now and he was... He had the stature of a ruler now. He spoke in Egyptian through an interpreter to them. And he had an Egyptian name as well. And then Joseph, imagine him with the dockets. And he's talking to people around him. He's busy. This group comes. And he, he looks up and is like, Which, who's next in the docket? And he sees these, these ten brothers. They're dressed in Canaanite garb or very particular garb, very different from the Egyptian dress, and they're all bearded, and they're all speaking his dialect. Probably a very rare dialect to hear in the land of Egypt. And he's thinking, wait a minute. They, they look familiar. They sound familiar. There's ten of them. Oh, no. C- could, you, could you imagine the shock that he must have experienced? 
you know, there's people I don't want to see now that I saw 20 years ago that I really don't want to see again. <laughs> That's not godly, I know that. Um, but I, I'm like, uh, they're a reminder of my past that I don't want to recreate. You know, Joseph didn't, wasn't guilty of things that he didn't want brought up. You know, there's people I'm thinking, I did things with people 20 years ago that I don't want to confront now because it's going to bring up a lot of bad memories. And the bad memories it must have brought up for Joseph, though, being stripped and thrown in a pit and he's crying out and they're not listening to him and they take him they treat him harshly they sell him to 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 Midianites and he goes to Egypt and 20 years he's it must have been on his mind what are they doing now where's Benjamin where's my dude they tell my dad ever and all of a sudden just a rush of these emotions must have come back to him this is a dramatic meeting and he it uses the word recognize, I think, four times. And it's almost to say that, you know, Joseph has them, but no, it can't be, it can't be them. It's that, that's them. I recognize them, but wait a minute, I've got to make sure that's, this is impossible. He must have had mixed emotions. He must have, have detested what they did to him, yet he was aware that because of them he suffered, and yet it was because of what they did that he was in the place where he was now. And we saw last week that he, God made him forget all those hardships of his past. And, and we see that he was a man of faith. And all throughout, one thing was constant. He remembered that the Lord was with him. He remembered God. And so he, he must have been conflicted as he saw his brothers. He had seven years to reflect. His past seven years of, of plenty in Egypt, he had overseen them all. And he had seven years to reflect on God working through every circumstance, finally having seen the good that came of it. And he was benefiting from the goodness of God. And, but these, these guys were still his brothers. There's something like family. There's, there's nothing like family relationships to, to try us. <laughs> there, there's nothing like family relationships to tempt us. As wonderful as they might be or as terrible as at times they can be. They were still the ones who had thrown him in the pit and ignored him. They sold him for just 20 pieces of silver. Now each one of them has a bag of silver and wants to buy from him. So to be sure, he thinks he does. He thinks he recognizes them. He questions them. He doesn't reveal his own identity yet though. So he speaks roughly with them to conceal his identity and they confirm they're indeed from the land of Canaan. Now Joseph's sure there's brothers that they don't, they don't recognize him. And he's, imagine the battle he's thinking, of, what, will they recognize me? I, I, I hope not. And you can imagine him trying to put on a, even a thicker Egyptian accent to con, conceal his identity. In a, and after he's sure of who they are, a flood of memories come over him. He remembers the dreams, it says, that he had dreamed of them. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, I forgot that. But yeah, I had a dream that, that, they were all going to come and bow down to me, yet they're not all here. He doesn't trust himself to his brothers again until he's sure that he can trust them. You know, you remember his brothers weren't exactly choir boys, right? I mean, they, these weren't good guys. These were some tough, bloody, callous men when Joseph last saw them. Remember Simeon and Levi, right? They slaughtered a whole town of people to exact revenge these were some bad dudes he had good reason not to trust him 
Reuben had slept with his father's concubine to secure his place as the dominant family leader. All of them stripped Joseph of his coat, threw him in a pit, and they were ruthless, and they sold him to slavery for what amounted to two pieces of silver per person. Despite his cries for mercy, and it's in this moment the narrator gives us only a hint of the fact Joseph was motivated by his dreams that God had given to him to figure out a way. How, how he wasn't motivated out of vengeance. See, he could have exacted vengeance. But God had worked on him. God had worked in his life. And God uses him as a tool to confront his brothers. And so Joseph, he really is a wise and clever leader. He's proven to be the wise leader that Pharaoh recognized him to be. He hatches a plan on the fly, and then he accuses them of being spies. And, and so with his knowledge, and yet his brothers not knowing, and that's repeated a few times, he's knowing, and his brothers are not knowing. He recognizes, and they don't. He says, no, you're, you're, you're spies. Because he wants to find out what kind of men they are. How will they react? Will they tell the truth? Will they be honest? And then, Something is happening. There's a character change that's beginning to happen that's bringing these brothers to a place where they realize who they really are. And they, they say something that must have been shocking for him. They must have put a lump in his throat. They said, we're, we're, we're 12 brothers. They could have said, we're 11 brothers. They could have just said, we're 10 brothers. He said, there were 12 brothers. There's 10 of us here. One's back home with our dad. And, and one is no more. He must have called hard <laughs> And he's thinking, I'm, I'm that one. And um, yet he, he, he continues. He continues on with his ruse and he accuses them for a third time to wear them down, to break them. Must have been frightening for them. Imagine they don't know who he is. They know that this is the ruler over all of Egypt and this man is accusing us of being spies and in that day, it would have just taken nothing for a spy to be killed, to be executed for his crime. Joseph's intent on getting Benjamin there, though, and so again, he accuses them again of being spies. And so he swears by the life of Pharaoh. And, and to those people around him and those his courtiers who heard that, that would have been a solemn pledge that would have sealed their fate. Swearing by the life of Pharaoh, who in that land there could be no higher. If the brothers didn't bring Benjamin back, they would have been judged as spies. They never would have been allowed to trade in the land again. And the families, they would have starved. They must have been frightened. They must have been terrified. Because it's not just their lives. Now they're imagining, and all of our family is going to die as well. And then Joseph, he, he makes him sweat it out. He throws him in jail for three days. And he probably, he did that to convince them that he really thought they were spies and he probably also wanted to see would they stand together or would they betray one of them he was seeing if three days in prison would would they be confronted with their own guilt and after three days joseph gets them out of prison and he gives them a second chance he reveals to them that he fears god as well and that must have made them question wait a minute here's this egyptian ruler and he says he fears elohim What's, what's up with that? They must have been afraid and sad and distraught over what to do and they were completely at his mercy. And I bet Joseph was at least distracted for those three days. Don't you think? 
His brothers are in jail. 20 years have gone by. What is he thinking? What are they thinking? Who's this man who's thrown us in jail? And then, and then after three days, he reveals his true character. He didn't punish them. That's remarkable, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to punish your brothers? Sinfully so, but yet he's trusting in God. He's having faith in God. He doesn't abuse them. He lessens the sentence. He, instead of holding all of them and sending one of them back, he's thinking of his father probably, thinking this will kill my dad if, if one of them goes back and nine are here. And yet he sends nine of them back. And he's thinking of their families and then wants to provide for them. Out of compassion, he lets nine of them carry grain back. And, and then look down in your Bibles at verse 21. Something is going on. It's, and it's, it's more than meets the eye. They said to one another, verse 21, In truth we are guilt. We are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us and we did not listen. They're starting to get it. That is why this distress has come upon us. Before they left, a conversation breaks out amongst them and they speak freely in their own native language they wouldn't have expected him to understand what they said and because he was speaking through an interpreter and a taste of their own medicine three days in jail. It had brought out these feelings that they're... 20 years ago, their brother's cries of distress had fallen on deaf ears and they were just harsh and, and sold him. And then they went to their father 20 years earlier and he was crying and nothing would console him and yet they kept up the ruse. And yet God used this hardship, this adversity to soften their hearts. And that's, at times, you know, our heads are thick as well and sometimes God uses whatever means, not because he doesn't love us, but because he's working in and through our lives. Not because he's callous towards us or doesn't care about us or because God's being mean or vindictive, sometimes though we do undergo adversity so that we can see, see our guilt before him, not so that we can be stuck there, but so that we can experience freedom and deliverance in his grace. Up until now, they'd not seen their own guilt. Sometimes it's hard for us to see our own guilt too, isn't it? When I am angry with my wife and I'm, and I am so aware of what she's done wrong. Normally she hasn't actually, but um, I'm so aware of what she's done wrong and I'm so aware of, maybe I am right in the thing I'm arguing about, but I'm just all wrong. And I'm not aware. And I need to be confronted to see my own sins and admit my own culpability. And it's, that's hard to do at times. Because I think all of us are tempted to justify our behavior, aren't we? We justify our own actions. We point to the behavior and actions of other people. Do you ever do that? I'm sure you don't. I, I, I justify my own behavior, my own actions, by, by thinking more about somebody else's sins. Somebody else has wronged us. And yet, for us to be set free, we have to see the problem is not with somebody else. Actually, the problem lies with us. It's not my spouse that causes me to be angry. It's not my kid's fault that I'm impatient. It's not my boss's fault because he's terrible. It's not anybody else's fault 
And we need to see that. We need to see our own guilt so that, so that God can set us free. You know, when we remain in our sin like that, when we remain blind to our sin, it's, it's, it's like we're shackled by it. And, and God sometimes will bring hard things so that we can see that we, we need freedom. We need his grace. We need forgiveness that only comes from him. That doesn't come from any self-effort. We have to see our guilt and sometimes God trains us and prepares us through confronting us with our guilt. These, these brothers, they needed to see for themselves who they were if they were to change. They needed grace even though they didn't know it. They didn't know they needed grace until now. They were just standing around looking at each other like a bunch of morons. But now they started seeing that like they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt and now one of them would be enslaved. They started seeing that this, this must be related. Hang on, something's happening here. This must be related to our secret sin against our brother. And they're beginning to see their guilt. God is preparing them for his grace by confronting them with his guilt, their guilt. And we're going to see that all the way down from 6 to 25, God's preparing them through guilt. And this awareness of guilt, it must precede their salvation because without it, there would be no salvation for them. Until they own up to their own sins, they can't start to see the need to be rescued. And, and then they're not rescued until they begin to see the need that it's not anybody else's fault but their own. And at times, God does that with us. Often God uses hard things like famine to get us to see our own guilt, not because he wants to punish us, because he wants to see his, his grace. He wants to change us. He wants to set us free from ourselves. There's a good message here. God has a, the intention to set his people free. That's what he's intending in these verses. He's, he's confronting them. He's, he's, he's putting famine on them. He's, he's throwing them in jail. He's making things hard on them. He's scaring them because he has good intentions. Because he wants to set them free. He wants to save them. He wants to, to build them up for the next 400 years after that and make them into a great and mighty nation. He wants to prepare them so that they can be the people he meant for them to be. And yet they'll never be that unless they're confronted with their own guilt. And our guilt's meant to point us to our need for God. We can, thanks be to God though, we, we're not left with chapter 42 here. We're We've got the entire New Testament ahead. That we have a great deliverer in Christ. We can turn to God and hope and that he will bring us his salvation. And for all who turn to him, he sets us free from prison and he pardons us. Not partially. He doesn't leave us, doesn't leave us with a, a sentence hanging over our heads like we have to do more. He pardons us completely. In the account, Reuben speaks up and effectively says, I told you so. It's not his most shining moment. <laughs> Told you so. Brilliant. That's helpful. That's really helpful when you tell your spouse that as well. That's good. That often leads to conflict resolution. <laughs> not. <laughs> oh, they hadn't listened to Joseph's cries, but unbeknownst to, the, to them, Joseph in that day was listening to them. They hadn't heard his cries, but he was hearing them, the distress of their soul. He wasn't ignoring it. He wept, it says. He, he remembers them, and he, he knows now that they know they're guilty. 
And you know what they do? They begin to confess their sins openly. What is guilt meant to make us do? It's, it's meant to bring us to the place where we can confess our sins openly. These brothers, they began to be convicted and they're telling each other, oh, surely this is our sins. They know they have to do something about it. They know this is God's recompense. They know they need deliverance. They don't know how to get it. Our guilt is meant to drive us to confession of our sins. In a confession, it's the, the first step in repentance and turning from our sins and turning to hope in God. And if you're guilty today, here's the good news. You can confess your sins to God. And, and, and 1 John tells us that when you confess our sins, he is not ruthless with us. Like Joseph was not ruthless with them. He is faithful and just, it says, to forgive us our sins and to make us clean from all unrighteousness. What a promise we have. If you're feeling guilty this morning, let me encourage you. Cast off your guilt. Confess your sins. Find freedom and forgiveness and don't wallow in condemnation. So clearly in in these verses, revenge was not his motive and he turns away from them and he he weeps. He comes back. He chooses Simeon. They must have thought, whoa, why did he choose the, the second brother when Reuben had just confessed that he wasn't guilty and Joseph overhears that, and so he thinks, okay, I didn't know that, but okay, so I'll I'll hold Simeon responsible. So he takes Simeon. God uses Joseph as an instrument of his grace to bring his brothers to a place where they confront their sins, and that happens so much. The Holy Spirit, he uses these, these outward means of discipline for us, doesn't he? To stir our consciences. Joseph doesn't reveal who he was because if he did so, he, he couldn't be sure of their character. Kind of, kind of like the, the rich man who he's courting a woman and he doesn't tell her that he has great riches because he doesn't want to, he wants to know that, that she really loves him for who he is and not, not for his riches. And Joseph wants his brothers to repent, not because they're scared of him or because of his position or because he could do something bad to them. He wants his brothers to repent to see if the repentance was genuine. When we come to God, we can't come to God trying to get something from him. We come to God to get, get forgiveness, to receive life, to receive things that only he can bring, not to use God, but we come to God to receive great joy. And our guilt's meant to function to point us away from ourselves into our own desperate need. It's meant to drive us to the point where we want to be free from our sins and humble ourselves and admit them and and so from verse 25 at the end of the chapter and in, in, in the remaining few minutes we have, there's just, just really two main points left and it's, they're very short. It's that not only is we prepared through guilt, we're prepared through fear as well. Sometimes we have scary things happen in our lives. Unknown things happen in our lives and there's some, there's some things that cause fear in their lives. They find money in the sack, they're afraid. When they open up all the sacks to get back to their, their father in the land of Canaan, they realize, oh my goodness, he's, he's going to think we're all thieves and he's going to put Simeon to death. And he uses fear to prepare them to receive God's grace. But look at this. They have an amazing reaction. God is pummeling them with his mercy. He's, God, is, God is bringing hard mercy to these brothers. And then the question is, it's, it's, they say, what is this that God has done to us? They finally are starting to get it. So they're connecting their guilt, they're connecting it to God, and they're connecting it to the need for God to deliver. 
in God's forgiveness. Their fear drove them not to themselves, but say, wait a minute, what's, what's God at work doing? This time, instead of lying about their brother and keeping the money, you see, they could have gone back and said that Simeon had died. Think about that. They did it to Joseph earlier. They all had their own bags of money and the grain. They could have lied about Simeon too, but now God is working in them. He's, he's been impressing his hard mercy on them. And he's been preparing them through fear, through being in jail. And they all empty their sacks out. And they hadn't been afraid for Joseph's condition before, but now they're afraid for their brother. They're afraid for what might happen. They, they have thoughts of others. They knew they were caught. They're like a frightened rabbit in a trap, you know, that they, they were boxed in on every side. They didn't know how to get out. And that, that fear, it was stirring something in them. An awareness of God. And, and when you're in circumstances that make you afraid and the unknown is happening, you're saying, God, what are you up to? It's meant to point us to our need for faith in God. What, what are you afraid of today? What are you afraid of today? Are you afraid of your, of your own future? Maybe you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from. Maybe you're afraid of the condition of your physical health. Maybe you're afraid that everybody's going to leave you. Maybe you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and maybe you're afraid for the future of your family or your children. Don't stay in your fear. You see, our, our fear is meant to point us outside of ourselves to our need for God. Faith in the only one in whom we can have faith in. Like David, we can turn to God in our fear and have faith in him instead. And David said in Psalms 27, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. There's some bad things happening to him. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will not lift me high upon, I mean, he will lift me high upon a rock. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. How is fear supposed to function is to point us to the God of our salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. That's our promise. The Lord will take us in when we confront fearful circumstances, fearful situations. The Lord will take us in. David says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. I believe... Here's where fear is meant to drive us. I believe. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. We have to speak to our souls like this at times. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, not in ourselves. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Fear is meant to drive us to seek God's face, to to make us want to run to him for refuge. 
we can take courage like David. We can, we can wait for the Lord. Let our heart take courage because the Lord will take us in. He will shelter us in the storm. And there's, a, there's a sad ending here in these final verses. Jacob, Israel, he turns to himself. He doesn't turn to God in the end of these verses. Jacob is, is turning to himself. He's focused inwardly. He's more aware of his own needs. He responds with self-pity and he's faithless as well. And yet God's even preparing him through sorrow to see that no matter how hard he tries to hold on to his family and the things that are most dear to him, he's, God's preparing him through sorrow. Jacob's got no plans to go back and get Simeon. He considers Simeon as good as dead. He doesn't consider Simeon's family. This is all about Jacob now. Reuben responds passionately and foolishly to offer to kill his two sons. I mean, how, how's that going to help? How's it going to help a grieving grandfather? Oh, yeah, sure. And Reuben shows he's a little cowardly. He doesn't, doesn't offer himself. He offers his sons. And, but Jacob would rather just cut his losses and keep what he has safe. You ever feel like that? You just want to cut your losses. I, I, I don't care. I'm going to crawl in my own little hole. I'm just going to be in my own little sad world. I'm just going to dwell. I'm just going to stay here. And no matter what you say, you can't comfort me because what I believe is true. But if you're in the midst of that, God wants you to look up. To not, not try to, to draw things in closer to yourself, but to say, God, I look to you and I, I trust you with all that I have. Just like Job had to be undone before he saw who God was and, and, and could trust in him. God's, God, ultimately, this story's not about Joseph. It's, this story's about the, the prime mover, God. He's at work to bring about good purposes. He's using all kinds of means. He's using sorrow. He's using sorrow to prepare them to receive his grace. First time, they, they, they seem to get it. A light bulb goes on in their darkened minds and the brothers start to realize the God of the universe is at work in our lives. He uses severe mercy to bring the healing process in their lives. They're, they're faced with all kinds of things, famine and espionage, death and imprisonment and no hope for freedom, but everything they don't understand, everything we don't understand, everything they don't understand, everything we don't understand, it's not because God doesn't love them, because God's unsympathetic. Because God doesn't understand their sorrows. No, that's, that's actually not the case. It's, Jesus was called the man of sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has understood our sufferings. Maybe you find yourself in a place of sorrow this morning. Sorrow over loss. Sorrow over what might have been. Sorrow isn't all bad. It has a purpose. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for mourning, a time for sorrow. Why is that? Because sorrow is, is meant to serve a divine purpose. Maybe you're, you're finding yourself full of sorrow. Sorrow over your failings. Sorrow over the failings of others. Sorrow over a sense of loss. What might have been. No matter what it is, it's meant to point us to find joy in God and not the comforts of this life. You see, there's no comfort in this life and, and Jacob's finding that. He's, he's trying to, to hold dear 
the things he thinks will satisfy him, and yet they don't. And it's meant to point him to find hope in God, to find solace, to find comfort and joy in the one who alone can bring us joy. We can respond with a godly grief. The Apostle Paul tells us a godly grief, godly sorrow leads to repentance and leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to Wait a minute, grief leads to what? What's grief meant to lead to? Grief meant to lead to salvation? And salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It seems like a sad and hopeless ending, but God does not leave us there. He doesn't want us to stay in our guilt. He doesn't want us to remain in our fear. He doesn't want us to wallow in our sorrows. This experience of true guilt, true fear, true sorrow, it's meant to lead us to repentance and forgiveness. Understanding our sins, acknowledging them, receiving his great grace, turning to Jesus who surely has borne our sufferings, punished for our peace that we might receive mercy and grace of the Father. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 10. Not on the overheads, but Hebrews 10, verse 22. Here's where I want to end this morning, and then we'll pray. Hebrews 10, verse 21, actually. Actually, let's start up in 19. <laughs> it's just a wonderful passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body that we, that we found out about earlier this morning in communion. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us do what? Draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full Assurance that brings, that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That's what we need, isn't it? Having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, saints, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, not because we are faithful. It says, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you were faithful to the end for us. Where Joseph and his brothers were afraid to go back to Egypt and approach the throne of what they didn't know was their brother. Lord, we, we don't need to be afraid. We don't, we don't need to fear approaching you. Thank you, God, that our guilt, our fear, our sorrow, it's, it's meant to drive us to you to receive your forgiveness. And Father, I pray that, that you would give hope this morning because you are faithful. God, where, where Joseph was faithful on this earth, Lord Jesus, you were even more faithful. 
And God, you'll continue to be faithful to rescue us. Like Joseph was faithfully plotting to rescue his brothers when they were unaware. God, you are faithfully plotting our rescue, our great redemption, even though we're unaware. And Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.